Hello and welcome to another episode of Daf Shui, Weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so and I'll give you a Daf or so. We are recording this a few hours before the onset of Tisha B'Av, the fast of the ninth of Av, the day in which we reckon with the impossibility of creating an ethical polity. We think about how our society destructed itself. And if we look outside, we see that with our own eyes. But then we think about what liberation might look like. And this year, especially, I am holding the 610 people who were killed, black and brown people who were killed by the Los Angeles Police Department and the Sheriff's Department. And I am looking towards liberation in part, looking towards the, in which there is no police force per se, but everybody gets what they need in terms of education, in terms of understanding restorative justice, in terms of the ability to have employment and food and clothing and shelter. And therefore, um, when friction arrives, as it inevitably does, people know how to deal with it without violence. That's what liberation looks like. That is the building of the third temple. Outside in the streets is the destruction of the second temple. And hopefully we will get over that. Okay. So here we are. I'm really excited about today's daf. I am really excited about today's daf. When we started doing this, I was waiting for today's daf. This is, uh, we're on 33B, eight lines from the bottom in the edition of the Talmud that the brothers and widow Ram published in, in Vilna, low these 150 years ago. And of course, there will be a link to various different ways to access the daf on the podcast page. Okay. Person said to his fellow, my boy, what are you doing in my land? Right? This already should be really, really familiar to everybody. Right? We've seen this a whole bunch of times. He said back to him, I bought it from you and I consumed it for the years of Chazaka. I consumed the usufruct of the land. So three years. So he brought one witness that he had eaten it for three years. Right? Two witnesses is considered witnesses. One witness is not considered witnesses. Or proof. So... Apparently, the rabbis were sitting in front of Abaya when this case came, or when they discussed this case. And they said, you know what? This is just like the metal bar of Rabbi Abba. So what is the metal bar of Rabbi Abba? Glad you asked. There was a guy who grabbed a metal bar from his friend, or a piece of metal from his friend. Now, the Gersa that I, the, I'm going to read, it's going to be a little bit different than the printed edition if you're following along in the printed edition, but this is the way that all the manuscripts have it. It doesn't really change the meaning. So there was this guy who grabbed a piece of metal or metal bar from his friend. So he came before Rabbi Ami. And he brought one witness that the other guy had taken the bar, had grabbed the bar from him. Rabbi Abba Kameh, Rabbi Abba was sitting 
um, was also sitting in front of studying from Rabbi Ami. Amarle in Chatfi vididi Chatfi. He said, "Yes, I stole. I grabbed it, but I grabbed my own. In other words, it was mine." Amar Rabbi Ami, is Rabbi Ami repeated. Rabbi Ami replied, "Hechini dainua daine lahaidina." So how could we ever judge this kind of a case, right? What's the case? Case is one guy grabs a piece of metal from another guy, right? And that seems to be Rabbi Abba. And the other guy says, he grabbed my thing. And I have a witness that he grabbed it. The first guy, the guy who was who grabbed it says, yes, I admit I grabbed it, but I grabbed it and it was mine. And Rabbi Ami is now confounded. He said, there's no possibility to judge this case. Words, how do we arrive at a conclusion when when A grabs B's metal and A admits that he grabbed it, B has a witness that he grabbed it, but A says, I grabbed my own thing. So why is he confounded? Lishlam, like a Jaisadi. So you can't force him to pay because he has two witnesses. You can't force the grabber to pay because there, there are not two witnesses. There's only one witness. So there's no way to confirm them. That's not considered evidence. Lifter A, you can't uh, exempt him. Maybe you should just exempt him. So you can't exempt him because there is one witness to say that he did pay. And in order to dismiss one witness, we'd have he'd have to take an oath. But what would be the oath that he'd take? The oath would have to be that he didn't take it, but actually he said he did take it. So you can't dismiss him. You can't just dismiss him. So make him take an oath. How can you make him take an oath? Because he actually already said that uh, he, he, he he grabbed the thing. And since he already grabbed it, since he already said, I grabbed it, or he said that he grabbed it, then he's like a goslin. Now, what does that mean that he's like a goslin? So this is the way the Rashbam explains the whole thing. First, he says, what's the counterfactual? If there were two witnesses that he grabbed the metal bar, we would obligate him to pay because the person is not believed to say, I grabbed what was mine, unless he has witnesses that it was actually his. If there was not a witness that he grabbed it, we would have believed him saying, I grabbed my own object by way of amigo, that he could have denied it. But now that there is a witness, there is no amigo. In other words, he can't say, I could have said, I bought it from you. Or I could have said, I didn't grab it. But now that there's a witness that he actually grabbed it, he can't say uh, there's no amigo left, right? There's no possibility for him to say, I could have said something greater. And since I said something less, you have to believe me. And if he had denied grabbing it, he would have sworn an oath, which would have contradicted the witness and it would have been his. However, um, what would he have? What, what oath would he have sworn? Because he didn't deny it. He said, "I grabbed it." So now the problem is: how? So why not make him pay? There's only one witness. So since we believe him when he says "chatafti," this is according to Rashbam. Since we believe when he says "I I grabbed it," we should also believe him when he says "I grabbed my own." Right? So pesha sarah pesha itir. I grabbed it, but it was mine. Maybe we should let him go. Maybe we should exempt him. There is, after all, one witness, and he would need to swear an oath to get rid of that witness. However, the oath he would have to swear is not what he's claiming. In order to contradict the witness, he'd have to claim, I didn't grab it. But he did grab it. He admits that. Let him swear an oath. So he cannot swear an oath since the oath he would have to swear is that he didn't grab it and he admitted already that he grabbed it. He cannot just swear that he grabbed his own item since that's not the oath that the Torah obligates him for. right? So he's between an administrative anvil and an administrative 
the thing that you smash an anvil down onto, which is escaping my mind right now, right? And uh, between a rock and a hard place, right? He can't do anything. So that's why he says that, that's why uh, Rabbi Ami says, I, I, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm, I'm gobsmacked. I'm going to let Rabbi Abba. So Rabbi Abba said, Have a shvua, so Riyabah was sitting in front of him, said, it is like, it is somebody who is obligated to take an oath, which they can't take. And anybody who's obligated to take an oath, which they are not allowed to swear, or which they can't swear, then they have to pay. Right, that's the same thing with if you find uh, if you if you're a shomer if you're a guard what's called a guard a, a bailey in the English translation which helps nobody but a, a a guard who is guarding an object and then uh, you something happens to it by negligence and if you can't swear for whatever reasons then you have to pay swearing is a way of getting out of paying and swearing that you didn't do anything wrong. So here it's it's a it's an oath that you can't take. So since it's an oath that you can't take, unless you can't swear the oath, so then you should have to pay. So this is what we're talking about as the metal bar of Rabbi Abba, because Rabbi Abba was the one who came up with this solution. Amarle Abaye. So Abaya comes back, and now we're going back all the way to Abaya's students, right? Abaya is now answering his students and said, Why isn't this just like when you have one witness to the fact that this guy used the usufruct of the land for three years. Why is that not like the metal bar of Rabbi Abba? Amalai Abaye, so Abaye says, me dummy. It's probably Amar Laho Abaye, right? They're different, actually. The manuscripts have, have both, but he's probably talking to his students. He's not talking to Rabbi Ami, so to Rabbi Abba, so he's talking to his students. So, yeah, it's Gemara. Amalai Abaye, Amar Laho Abaye, me dummy, it's not the same. How is this the same? It's not the same. Hatam sahada orue kati. There, in the case of the metal bar of Rabbi Abba, it is witnesses against him. Ki ati achrina mafkina lamine. And if they brought another, if another witness would come together with the first witness, they would take the metal bar away from him. Hachalisiyue kati. Here, it is actually a witness in order to. Support him. If another witness came, then we would give him the land. We would establish the land in his hands. So it's a different, whole different case. So now we're going back. We have to remember a little bit of what we did last week. So if you're going to compare it, you should compare this of Rabbi Abba to when you have one witness for two years, and you're only talking about eating the fruit, right? Not the land itself, but eating the fruit. So then, since we say that about the fruit, there is no star anyway, so we say they have, and but you admitted that you ate the fruit, and there's only one witness, and so what do you do? Do you pay for the fruit or not? That would be the case of Rabbi Abba, where you can take an oath, because the oath, the only oath you would be allowed to take is that you, is a, an oath, which is contradicting the witness, but you already said you ate the fruit for three years, but you only have a, a witness for two years. 
So on the other hand, you're not allowed to get away with it because you said you ate the fruit. So and it's just for fruit, not and and not for the land. That would be the same thing as Rebbe Abba, and it's an oath that you're not allowed to take. And then since it's an oath you're not allowed to take, then you would have to pay the money. Okay. Now we're coming near the end of this case book. Hahu Arba, there was a book. Minsu that two people were fighting over. Now, as a as a side thing, that minsu is a word which portends bad things. Right? We have it, for example, in Shmot in Exodus, in the beginning of Exodus with Moshe, but it says, Moses came out on the second day. Two Hebrews. Two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the evil one, Why are you, why would you hit your fellow? And this is what causes Moshe to run away. But Nitzim is the same root as Minsu. And there are another, the other places that it, it comes up, unsurprisingly, are about fights because it means to fight. But it's all kind of, it portends. It's not that, you know, it's, it's a little different introduction than my bayit bayara. Because it's two people, it's more like right? It's two people who are fighting over this same boat, which neither of them has. And the Rashbam helpfully says that the boat is in water. We don't know that, though it makes sense, because in the water it's not on neither of their property, right? It's on neither of their property, so therefore neither of them can claim a chazakab by the fact that it's in their property. All right. Hi Amar Didihi, Vahai Amar Didihi. One of them says, it is mine, and the other one says, it's mine. Atachad Minaihu Levedina. So one of them goes to the court, the Amar, and says, Tifsua Adamaitina Sahadi Didihu. And he says, he says, seize the boat, seize it, until I bring a witness or I bring witnesses that it is mine. Tafsina lo tafsinas. Then the question before the court is, do we seize it or do we not seize it? Rav Huna amar tafsina and Rav Yehuda amar la tafsina. So Rav Huna says, we seize it. And Rav Yehuda says, we don't seize it. Azal v'la ashkach sadis. And then he went looking for witnesses and he didn't find any witnesses. Amar laho. So then he comes back to the Beitin and he says to them, afkuha, apkuha v'hold alim gvar. Release it, and the stronger one will overcome. Meaning that whoever, and that's a good question. What is called alim gvar mean? And uh, Rashi said, Rashbam says that it means either you know with either with evidence or physically. Tosot seems to understand that it means physically beating each other up. The rush, and the rush, others. It's like it's whoever you know. You have to shove somebody off the land, and then they'll ask the question why. Mapkinan olo mapkinan. Do we release it or not? Meaning, does the Beitin release it or not? Rav Yehuda amar lamapkinan. Rav Papa amar mapkinan. So Rav Yehuda says we do not release it. And Rav Papa says we do release it. Vehilcheta latapsinan. Vehilcheta tafas lamapkinan. And the halacha is that we do not seize it. But if we do seize it, we let it go. So now everybody's, of course, asking the question, why... What happened here? How come you have a Hilchata? Right? How is there the Gemara never comes to a conclusion? So some scholars 
would say that the Hilchita is actually later, right? It's a it's a Saboreic and maybe even a Gaonic insertion in the Gemara, which tells us the Halacha is. And this little piece actually seems to be also different, both in personalities and also in case, than the larger case book. All right, so let's take a look. At, let's go back and take a look, little look at, at what's going on here. So what is the relationship? There are two disputes about this case of this boat that two people are fighting over, and uh, then they end up having to beat each other's brains out over. A little exaggeration, but who knows? So there are two machlokot. One is, do you does the court seize it? And then, does the court let it go? Now, the question is, does the court release it? So the question is, are those two disputes tied to each other? There could be either way. So the Rashbam understands that when Rabbi Yehuda says we, meaning the court doesn't seize it, it's because the court, because Lama Pekina, because the court does not release it, right? So therefore, if we would seize it and not release it, then we'd be in controlling property that isn't ours, meaning we, the court, would be controlling property that isn't ours, and we'd be causing somebody, we don't know who, but we'd be causing somebody a loss. And the same way, the other way around. Why why does Rav Huna say we do seize it? Because he also holds, like Rav Papa, that say, who says, that we release it. So therefore, we're not causing anybody a loss. On the other hand, the Tosvot says, the Re in Tosvot says, that the two sides of the conversation are not connected. Tafsinan, right? In other words, even if we hold la mapkinan, according to Rav Huna. So Rav Huna says tafsinan, even in a case that we seize it, even in a case where we wouldn't let it go. And la tafsinan, even according to the one who holds mapkinan. So Rav Yehuda would say, we don't seize it, even according to the one who says that we do release it which we have to understand as mapkinan in a case where we in which we already seized it, right? In other words, if we already seized it, then Rabbi Yehuda would say, perhaps, that we let it go. So those two machlokan, well, Rabbi Yehuda wouldn't, because Rabbi Yehuda says that we don't, we don't release it. But Rabbi Yehuda would say, if the, the halacha had been that we do let it go, Rabbi Yehuda would say, still say that we don't seize it, even if, after the fact, if we had seized it, we would let it go. So now the question is, what does called Alam Gvar mean? And what, what are the possibilities? So one thing is that called Alam Gvar, well, we explained that Rashi says the, the literal words, in other words, that it, is, it, it doesn't necessarily mean two people beating each other's brains out. It could mean just by evidence. Now, that's kind of a, it's kind of a wiggling out of it because the point is that there, are, there is no evidence that's greater on one side than the other. So it, has, it probably means physically overpowering, right? In some way, right? What is alim? The one who is stronger and who is stronger. So the Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher, Toledo, said, right, he's a uh, 14th century, um, says that there's a psychological component to this, that the one who actually owns it will fight harder for it because the one who doesn't actually own it knows that he doesn't actually own it. And so therefore, he knows that if he gets it, then the other guy will get it afterwards. will bring proof sometime, and then he'll lose it again. So why fight so hard? So according to Rabbeinu Asher, this is actually a way of proving who, who owns it. And so essentially, it's a psak. So that brings us into the second question, whether or not 
is a decision, a judicial decision, or it's a preparatory move for a decision, right? In other words, that we have the possibility of deciding whose property it is based on the principle of hamotzim chavero alav haraya. The one who wants to extract land from another has to have evidence for that. Now, if we have a situation where nobody is machzik because they're just fighting over it, but neither one is on the property or on the boat, so then we can't say anything. But if we let them beat each other up until somebody's standing on the property, then the then that guy's the machzik. That guy's the the one, the owner or the the the, the resident for now, the holder onto, and the other guy is uh is the motzi, is the extractor. So the extractor has to bring proof that it's his. So now we have a way, a judicial way of taking care of it, of dealing with this case. Okay, so we have this case. We end up, the halacha is that la tafsina, tafas la mafkina, right? If you, uh, you don't seize it, but if you did seize it, you don't let it go. This week's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Plukta, the original social conflict consultancy. Ever wonder how to resolve those awkward social situations where you were throwing a party and you invite one person, but you meant to invite another person? And you really like the one person, but you ended up inviting the person you really hated? Because their names were really close and your fingers are really fat and they hit the wrong name and then you left a message and the wrong guy came to the party and now what do you do? Well, let me tell you. Plukta was created for just those situations. With their patent-pending Compton by Compton method and their JBID solutions, that is, just burn it down, you won't have to worry about these situations anymore. You will be able to enjoy your parties without the pesky people who just want to poop on your party. And the best thing is, the JBID solutions give you maximal deniability, so when things go south, you aren't even there. And now, for listeners of this podcast, a special offer. If you contact us through our website, www.plukta.com slash dafshui, you get half off on your first social disaster. That's www.plukta.com dafshui. Okay, and now we continue the last case. In a case where this guy says, it is my ancestors, a piece of property or something else. And this guy says, it is my ancestor. Rav Nachman says, called Alan Gvar, whoever is stronger wins, right? Overcomes. So now they, this case continues, but it doesn't really continue because it, it, I mean, it does continue, but it continues only in the sense that there's a stomachic commentary on it and the way there is on many other cases. But I want to suggest here that actually this is the end of this case book that we've seen. So, there's an interesting thing here. So we've done, the, all the texts that we've done from 29B until now are one literary creation. And there's a rhythm to them, right? If you remember back, you don't have to go back and, and see it, but hopefully this will strike a chord. And if you just joined us this week, then I will try to uh, make it understandable, right? So if we go back to 29B until here, we start out with six cases, all of which start how right? One who says to his fellow, what are you doing in my house or in my land? Now, of those six cases, there are six in a row. Two of them are, two of them continue. I bought it from you. The other guy responds to him. I bought it from you. And I consumed the use of fructus for three years, for the years of Chazakah. 
than one which is minach. I bought it from so and so who said he bought it from you. And finally, three cases of I bought it from this other guy, and I consumed the use of fructose for three years. Right? So that's six cases. Two cases then follow, which this guy says it's my ancestors. This guy says it's my ancestors. Then one, which is actually three. How This guy said to his fellow, what are you doing on my land? And that is followed by, I bought it from you, and here is the deed, which then generates two more hahu, damar lachabres, right? Two two more types of, but those are monetary cases, which generate out of these. And then finally, one, zeromar shalabotai, zeromar shalabotai, this one is my ancestors, and this one is my ancestors, which is actually a resumptive repetition of the previous right? It's the same exact case as the previous. This was my ancestors, and this was my ancestors. And then finally, then two, this one said to his fellow, what are you doing on my land? With the answer, I bought it from you, and I ate it, and I consumed the, the usufruct for three years, followed by the case we did today of the boat, how there was a boat in which Two were fighting over and finished off with right? This was my ancestor. This one said it's my ancestors. This one says my ancestors. And my ancestor Rav Nachman said, the one who is stronger wins. So these cases are all tied together by language and subject matter, and to a very large extent by personalities. Right? It is mainly a biased teacher and then Rabbah and then some others. All the Amorim are Babylonian. Most of them are from the same generation, the second or third generation of Babylonian Amoraim. And it's important that to, to get the fact that it's also this rhythm, right? Six, two, three, two, one. It's a and and it's it's an a theme in improvisation, if you think in, in jazz, jazz terms or in orchestral terms. It's a theme in improvisation on that theme. Because the theme is consistent. How Dharma Lakhabre my boy by Ara. Right. And then right? Those are point, counterpoint, contrapuntal. And then you have the improvisations on those things, on those themes. So most of them are from the same generation, the second or third generation of the of Babylonian Marine. The question is, what is this as a whole? So one possibility is it could be an example of Avram Weiss's theory of the development of the Talmud, in which there was no final Redaction, as Avram Weiss says, the entire essence of the Talmud, which we have before us, says becoming and development and not final reaction. So in other words, that means that there that we see here that there's that original layer of what a case was, how Donald Habre, right? The one who said to their fellow, it's my answers, my ancestors. And then there was an answer to the, you know, then there that that basic thing was supplemented in each time by an Aramaic case statement. You know, I bought it from you, or I bought it from him, or here's the document. And then there was a decision based on that. And then there was more commentary on that. And then, and so it's just like abandoned at some point. It's not that there was a final redaction, but it's just, uh, it just keeps, it just develops from every generation. Every generation, according to Weiss, the sages made statements, Mame wrote, which were at some point given a literary form either by them or someone of their generation. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to quote Avram Weiss's theory is just 
to quote Avram Weiss, Avram Weiss, who was my first squeeze back in graduate school, if you want to have a whole bit about him in my first book called Rereading Talmud, Gender Law and the Poetics of Sugyot, Avram Weiss is a fascinating character. He was born in 1895. So this is going to be a 30-second public service announcement on Avram Weiss. Avram Weiss was born in 1895 in Podhachi in Eastern Galicia. I have no idea if that's how you pronounce it. That's how you pronounce Eastern Galicia, but I don't know if that's how you pronounce Podhache, P-O-D-H-A-J-C-E. He was ordained in 1916 by Rabbi David Horowitz. From 1917, he studied history and classical philology at the University of Vienna. While simultaneously studying at the Rabbinical Seminary of Vienna, he received his PhD in 1921 for his thesis, The Relationship of the Popes to the Jews During the Middle Ages. As everybody does. In 1928, he was on, he was docent for Talmud at the Institute for Jewish Science in Warsaw. He was involved in communal activities and religious Zionist affairs with the Mizrahi movement. Now, here's where it gets interesting. In 1939, he represented the Jews in feudal negotiations with the Nazis over the Warsaw Ghetto. In 1940, he was invited to Yeshiva University in New York to be professor of Talmud. He barely managed to escape the flames of the encroaching Holocaust with his wife and family. He taught at Yeshiva University until he moved to Israel, where he died in 1970. So his whole life, he was a Talmud scholar, except for that little piece of time when he was negotiating with the Nazis, trying to save his life, running out of Europe to escape the flames, and getting to New York to teach at Yeshiva University. Then he was still, once again, a Talmud scholar, and he's one of the most groundbreaking theories of, of the development of the Talmud. So that's one possibility, that this is just an example of the ongoing development of Talmud. There's another theory. It seems to me that what we have here is some manner of casebook, almost a legal exercise in which a basic case, this one said it's my ancestors, this one said it's my ancestors, or this one said to his fellow, is then played out in a number of different ways with witnesses, without witnesses, with lying, with misdirecting. And then those variations on the original theme are played out further by later sages like Ravashi. This may be an example of an early collection of texts that is inserted wholesale into this chapter. It may be one example of what an early layer of the Bavli looked like. You have a case, you have Rabbi Rav Nachman's decision, then you have further discussion on that case. The most basic case is this last one, right? The last case, the premise is unadorned. This one says it is my ancestors, and this one says it is my ancestors. The evidence is equal on both sides, and the decision is immediately arrived at by Rav Nachman's called Alam Gvar, whoever is stronger wins. I want to suggest that, that that is what the original thing looked like, that there were just cases and decision. And so there was case, decision, and then from that, Zelmar Shlavotai was Zelmar Shlavotai, and Rav Nachman says, called Alam Gvar. Then, in the form of kind of a school exercise, a law school exercise, right, using the Socratic method, whoa! Mr. Unprepared in the third row, second chair to the left, what would happen if there were no witnesses? Blah, blah, blah. Right? I have no idea because I've never been to law school. But I did see it in the movies. And then that's the way these things would develop so that ultimately you have this set of initial laws, initial cases with decisions, that they became a thing, right? That was like a, a, a text. It was a different type of ordering, it's, and it was put down as a whole in our chapter, and it stands, it stays as a whole, but then perhaps more things read it afterwards. Now, what one interesting thing is, the case we did today, which is fascinating, which is one of my favorite cases, of Hal Arba, the boat that was fought about by both of those, 
is completely different in both aesthetically, you know, the, the language that's used, and also the sages. It's Reb Yehuda, Reb Huna, Reb Papa. Reb Huna is mentioned once, but Reb Yehuda and Reb Papa aren't mentioned previously. It is an arba. The thing that ties it together is the hahu. There was or that, but it's talking about a boat. It's not talking. We've never mentioned a boat before. We had an arba, right? A a a guarantor or a middleman, actually. But we never had an arba with an aleph, a a boat. But also, it's 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 very different type of questions. It's a question that's brought to Beitin is, do we seize it or not seize it? And so I would think that that is later, I want to suggest, for those who are interested in the development of the sugya, that that's put in later because of the fact that this thing ends off with the Rav Nachman case, which is probably the earliest case, right, in the, in the uh, editing of that casebook, which comes together as a whole. And so when they had this text, this is a good place to put it. Let's put it out like this. Now, what's interesting is that none of these texts exist in the Yerushalmi. Right? Some, there's one text, and we talked about this in the case when Ziluta de Beidina, and the fact of whether or not we dismiss or whether dishonor the Beidin by changing our minds. So there's something like that in the Yerushalmi, but it's in Yerushalmi on the, ne- on, on the next Mishnah. But none of the other cases, and that makes sense because Rava was not a big guy in the Yerushalmi or Abayin, neither of them. They're mentioned a few times, but in the Bavli, they're the central figures. So it meant it makes sense that this is a Babylonian collection of, of cases, and it was put together, and it's an early form of what the Bavli would eventually look like. And it's kind of like, if you look at Mishnah Eduyot, and Mishnah Avot, there are different examples. They are examples of how the Mishnah could have been edited, right? If you have, in both of those, they're edited according to the generation of the sages, right? Avot is more what we would call philosophical, theological, religious, um, Confucian, and Eduyot is more, more legal, but they're both the editing principle is just by the generation. It's not, it's not by subject matter. And we have another example of that where you, sometimes you have editing according to in the Mishnah according to numbers. Right? The first Mishnah in Shabbat, Yitziyot Shabbat Shtayim Shein Arba, going at, goings out on Shabbat are two, which are four. So that's also found in the beginning of Shavuot because Shavuot, you also have the Shavuot are two, which are four, the oaths, there are oaths, two, which are four, and also... There you have impurities or two, which are for impurities, basically leprosy there I was talking about, Nagaim. So that could have been another, a mnemonic. So those are all mnemonics. This one, I'm not so sure that it was a mnemonic as much as a, a, a school case study book, right? In other words, that you had like in law school, you have a case study, you have a case book. These were cases, and those cases were developed as a, in the sense of, of a theme and improvisation. All right, we're going to stop here. Because if I get any more excited, I won't be able to stay in this uh, Beit Midrash in the closet. And I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank you for being here with me for this time. I hope you come back next week. I am Arye Cohen. You can follow me on Twitter at Irmiklat, I-R-M-I-K-L-A-T. My amazing thanks, as always, to the Dafshui team. My Chabruta Charlotta van Robert. My amazing producer, Eli Unger Sargon. And the graphics team who created the Dafshui logo, Shachar Kohen Hodos. 
You can rate this podcast on the Apple Tunes podcast page, the Apple podcast page. I should know what that is. Apple podcast page. You can uh, rate it. You can leave a comment. I'd love to hear from, from you. And please tell all your friends about it. Bring them next week so that the sounds of Torah go out all over the land. Have an easy but meaningful fast for those who are fasting. And hopefully we'll see you next week. Be well. Wear a face mask. Wash your hands.